This is Robert Capuccio. Welcome to the Self-Help Antidote, a weekly dose of reason, perspective, and insight, where we challenge conventional thinking and explore authentic strategies and insights around personal transformation. Our commitment to you is to bring you some of the world's leading experts in the domains of fitness, wellness, coaching, and behavior change, separating fact from fallacy. G'day, everyone. G'day, Bobby Capuccio. Hey, Tiffany. We've got a good topic to unpack today, don't we? Oh, let's have it. What do you got? Would the world be better off without humans? Or as you put it, mass extinction. Mass extinction. Would the world be better without us? So this is just a happy pick-me-up kind of topic to start (laughs) your week off. Big shout out to my dad for uh, bringing this one to our attention. Give us a little bit of context around this subject for the people who are logging on. And and no, we're fine. We're not off our meds. No, we don't need any meds. (laughs) Me and Tiffany are okay. Just... My dad was listening to some a conversation between some philosopher and somebody recently and he was talking about his ideas on this and dad said, I think you should have a conversation about this about because there's so much um, misery and turmoil in the world and that we're killing each other and slavery and all of the things and we're ruining the earth and would, would the world be better off without us? And it was interesting because a couple of days ago I told you Harps and I um, had a, an astronomer on his show and you know, I was listening to this person talk about astronomy and the universe and the world and what shit is made of and chemistry and atoms. And, and then when you start, when your mind expands to how big the universe is and how insignificant we are, and we, here we are with these grandiose bloody minds thinking that we are the everything. And it's like, we're not real. Like, what is the point? What is the point of us? We're here just ruining everything. Did you ever see Midnight in Paris? No. Nah. So there's a cinema in Denver. It's the Mayan cinema. And it's this old 1920s art deco cinema and it, it's appropriate for the film. So I was in Denver on business and my friend Morgan had rung me and said, look, I want to, I want to take you to the Mayan cinema. Do you want to see midnight in Paris, which took place in the 1920s? So it was a period piece. Perfect. I said, yeah, sure. Cause loved hanging out with Morgan and I rock up and I'm going through this film. And if, for those of you who haven't seen the film, it's about a guy who is having a, massive midlife crisis. He's a screenwriter, but he's always wanted to be a novelist. Yet he's surrounded by people who tell him he's lucky to be a screenwriter because he's not all that talented and he never would have the talent to pull off being a novelist. So he's around a supportive network, so to speak. And he's with his fiance in Paris and she's horrible. Her family's horrible. She's having an affair and she brought the guy, Bill. he's horrible. And she brought him along. So this is, this is a kind of, this dark comedic element. And he finds himself walking the streets of Paris lost, not not lost geographically, but emotionally and mentally lost in this midlife crisis. And this Peugeot pulls up filled with people and they're dressed in like 1920 style. And he jumps into the car and they drive off and he's magically transported every evening back to Paris in the 1920s, a period of time that he romanticizes about. And he meets people like Gertrude Stein, 
Dali, he meets Ernest Hemingway. And he, in a conversation with these people, he finally works up the courage to submit this novel, this draft of a novel that he has been writing to the legendary Gertrude Stein. Now, I would be scared shitless to submit my lunch order to Gertrude Stein <laughs> for evaluation. And Gertrude Stein is played by Kathleen Bates. And she tells him that he has this beautiful and distinct voice, but not to be such a defeatist. Now, here's this guy who's living in the 21st century. And here's Gertrude Stein, as brilliant as she was, living in as captivating a time and place as she did. But she hasn't seen the horrors that he has seen. Mm -hmm. So the horrors of his past, things like the rise of Adolf Hitler, the Popot regime, um, Britain's Got Talent, all of the worst <laughs> atrocities of the future that, that he's already witnessed. She doesn't realize that they're coming yet. And she, she doesn't argue with him when he pushes back. She just simply says, yes, she agrees. She concedes that life is horrible and sometimes it seems meaningless and empty. But then she utters what I think is one of the most beautiful lines in all of cinema. She said she admonishes him that this is might be true, but it's not for you because you've chosen the path of the artist. And she says it is not the job of the artist to succumb to despair. It is the job of the artist to find an antidote for the emptiness of his existence. I thought, wow, that's amazing. So, yeah. We do screw a lot of things up. We don't seem to be able to get on with each other very well. We seem to always fall back into these highly self-destructive, tumultuous patterns of human behavior. I don't know. It might be because we have primitive brains trying to adjust to a modern world and we haven't had enough time to adapt yet. It might be that we're fundamentally flawed. It might be that there's just greed and evil in the world. It might be that all of this is meaningless but if it's meaningless, it's oh so meaningful because we get to choose what does this mean for us? And we are here. And assuming that we're not going to have a mass extinction event for a little while, like asteroids do have a tendency to hit the earth and destroy everything. Like, I don't know, every few tens of millions of years. But what if that doesn't happen for 100, 200, 300 years and there's no purpose to all of this? Is it our job as artists because we do co-create our reality, maybe not on a canvas, you know, maybe our tools are this, our interpersonal communication and ideas and aspirations. Maybe that's our canvas. Maybe that's our hammer and chisel for whatever we sculpt and create like Michelangelo's The David. It's not our job to succumb to despair. If things are empty and they're meaningless, what is the antidote that I could provide you and you, me, and we provide each other with, or as many people as we possibly can? And that's my take on it. Do you reckon all those planets out there that Lisa was talking about, the astronomer, Lisa, all those planets that potentially potentially have whole new life, bunch of life going on on them. Do you reckon they're screwing it up as badly as us? <laughs> Do you reckon they're just ruining their environment? <laughs> Possibly. 
I mean, how think about this in the limitlessness or, or virtual limitlessness of space. I don't think we're alone. I mean, how could we be? No if you way. If just look at the law of probability that we exist. And if, if you can imagine, I don't know if this is even, you know, I'm not an astronomer. I don't know if this is accurate, but if you imagine that the, that our world is a gr- grain of sand on a vast beach. Yeah. Now you take that single grain of sand and inside of that is the most vast desert you can imagine. And you pick up another grain of sand and inside that grain of sand is this vast desert that you can not even imagine. And we might be a grain of sand in that vast desert within a vast desert within a vast desert. And that's how small we are. It makes sense that there are other grain of sands that are not maybe exactly like us, but similar to us in that they're conscious sentient beings. And maybe they've gone through all of this stuff or maybe they haven't. Because we think like, oh, my God, aliens, really advanced species. I don't know. Maybe they're just species that are just beating each other with sticks and throwing the shit at each other. Kind of like we were. Not not me and you, Tiff. <laughs> yeah, so that was, a, that, was a, that was a rough weekend. But, but like kind of like we were 100,000 years ago. Do you know what I find fascinating? That, that human beings have the ability to create things into existence like things that are just truly mind like look what we have invented the light bulb and it and computers and internet like internet this shit you can't even see you get a plastic box you plug it into your wall in your house that you've now got electricity and and somehow this piece of plastic on my desk has your face on it and your voice from the other side of the world comes through into my ears and then I get to put it back into the plastic box and then anyone that wants to can come and listen or even watch it. Like how ridiculous. But those same human minds and same human brains, we get stuck in our learned helplessness of humanity, we get stuck. Another lady we spoke to recently, she spent three years. She she packed up, bought a camel, bought a fucking camel, Bobby. She bought a camel and she walked around like Europe and the Sahara and she, she just for three years. Hold on. Where in Europe was she walking around with a camel? I can't even remember. I've been, but she, I've been she, through many cities in Europe. I've never seen any city where it looks like, you know, I reckon I could get away with walking my camel down this street. <laughs> but like, there's, a, there's, there's times we sit here, there's, and I've done it. Sometimes I do it, and people I know do it, and people I don't know do it. We go, oh, I, I hate my job, but I can't leave. And we and we sit in that vortex for ten years. I can't leave. Why can't you leave? And then old mate, she goes, I gotta go buy a camel. I'm gonna walk around the world for three years. I just gotta buy a camel, like. What a crazy idea. And then some old Clearly, mate, clearly the better option. <laughs> yeah, but like, isn't it, I don't know, the way that our minds work and the things that we're both unbridled and bloody bridled at the same time. Like we're, we're trapped but we're also can think be, way beyond our actual reality to create things that just – that just blow my mind when you think about it. Well, 
if we're talking about mind, let's assume that mind arises from the activity in the brain. And I'm not saying it does, but let's just assume for a second that that's the fact that the consensus throughout most of the neuroscientific world is true. Mm -hmm. So what I consider my mind is arising from activity in my brain. Why do I have a brain? Like why have a brain at all? I mean, there are some creatures that like once they fixate themselves to a habitat where they can feed, they actually digest their own brain because they what? don't need it anymore. Yeah. Really? Not, not too dissimilar to a lot of politicians. Oh, and that might, happen to, might have happened to me once. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they don't need it anymore. Um, why do we have one? And is, is it to have this unrestrained capacity for imagination or is that just an evolutionary side effect of the real reason we have a brain. I don't know what the answer is, but John Ratty of Harvard said something interesting. Maybe we have a brain because of ambulation, because we move. And our job is to find food and remember where we left food and then find mates so we can procreate and make little people that walk around finding food and remembering where they last left their food. And that would mean that one of our major imperatives is to survive long enough to complete that cycle. So we would have a negativity bias, wouldn't we? We would think about absolutely everything that would go wrong and select through multiple cognitive biases every time something went wrong, rather than being open to all the possibilities of what could go right, because the universe isn't necessarily conspiring against us. For everything that can go wrong, and it could, and it might, there's also something that could go very right, isn't it? You have to consider that possibility. Why are we so stuck in negativity biases? Because I think from an evolutionary perspective, the most negative amongst us has the greatest probability of procreating. It's like the wild explorer. Oh, let's see what's on the other side of that cliff. And yeah, they get eaten or they fall off cliffs. So they run into other tribes that, I don't know, beat them with sticks or whatever and take their first. So it, it would make sense that we're locked in not only recognizing, but also imagining all of the consequences that could ensue rather than, fuck, I'm going to like walk around Europe with a camel. <laughs> thinking about I had Kato Wittich back on the show I've had her on twice now and um she talks she does a couple of different methods of uh like somatic therapy she does a thing called family constellation super woo -woo. I'm actually doing a virtual one with her tomorrow which could be weird and it was on she was on sex love and goop on Netflix episode five sex love and goop sex love and goop like so they put people so you get these people, someone comes in with a with an issue that they want to resolve, and what happens is they take re- what they call resonators from other people in the group, so like it would say, "I'm going to take Bobby and bobby you're you're going to stand in as my father, and then someone else from the group stands in as my sister, and what happens is this um kind of the reality of those people that you start you know nothing about them these people know nothing about the person or the issue and then they start acting out or having feelings and reacting mm. and, and expressing what they're feeling and you get to piece together this generational shit that's played out it's really interesting really weird mm. anyway so I was talking to Kato. I feel like I've gone on a big tangent now and I've got to wheel back to why the hell I brought that up someone um, like you Tiffany <laughs> 
it is, isn't it? See, testament to the human brain. I'm trying to figure it out and it's taken me around the bloody mulberry bush a few times. Um, <laughs> so she was talking about how she mentioned this in the very first episode we did. We talked about um, the benefit of the bad shit that happens and she used an example with me, the worst one she could think of, and that was incest and the benefit of ev- to evolution. So everything that we do, every behaviour that we inhabit comes from a survival benefit. There's a survival benefit. So she explained that, you know, think about there's one day many, 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 many years ago and there's a family and the wife dies and then there's a father and his daughters. And in order for the species to survive, there needs to be – uh, somebody standing in as that mother, right? So this is just an example. Anyway, so what it, you know, it's just showing the evolutionary benefit of that thing happening, but then that generationally repeats. So then we're stuck with this really toxic thing that's happening to humans, but at some point it come from a necessary behavior for the species. And I think that this is the same in our belief system. So I've people have conversations where people are like, why am I, why do I have these negative thoughts about myself? Why do I do it? Why am I shit? And it's like at some point those negative thoughts, I know when I've talked to different therapists on the show, they talk about when we, I think it was Cato again speaking about shame, shame the reason for shame, if we shame ourselves, like as children, if we're not getting some of our needs met and we take ownership and responsibility and blame ourselves, then we can exist in that environment, right? So we can own it and have control over it. Does that make sense? So you're saying that if something's my fault, that might be damaging to me emotionally and psychologically, but as a child, I'm constructing a rudimentary explanation that gives me a perceived locus of control rather than there's absolutely no cause for this. And it's completely not predictable, which might be a little bit too much to bear. Yes. And then it gets to a point where we've held it all these years and we come back to it and go, that's actually not serving me anymore, but then we can't get rid of it. But then because we've got it, then we beat ourselves up over it. Oh, I've got this negative belief. So guess what? Now I am also shaming myself because I have negative beliefs about myself. Mm. And then I tell people and I'm like, I'm so shit because I have these negative beliefs. Rant over. Unpack that for me, Bobby. Can you just resolve that issue? <laughs> yeah, sure, Tiff. I'm going to solve this for you and everybody else. Just just give me like 30 seconds. Why did you just ask me this earlier? God, so many, so many people could have avoided so much suffering if you had just presented the question. Like I've been sitting on the answer for this for years. I thought, oh, nobody's really interested in this one. Everyone's listening. No- Everyone's listening going, what the? Did she even ask? What was the question? I know. There's got to be a question in there somewhere. I'm not sure I even know the question. It's just, you know, the complexity of of how we think and hold on to a thought and then still think the thought and then beat ourselves up about the thought and then get trapped by the thought. And there's like those two parts of the brain. There's that, there's that primitive part of the brain that is doing this stuff for our survival and then there's this, this intellect that we that we also have as humans where we're making meaning of that and then some of those two things just tend to collide. Well, I mean, 
everybody's heard the term neurons that fire together, wire together. So something that starts out as a single isolated thought, and there's a lot to that. There's what's the emotional intensity? What's the circumstances at the time that I'm having this thought? What's my level of fatigue? What's my level of stress? So, you know, if you say something to a kid in passing, that's not under significant stress and threat constantly, it might not have the same impact as if they're particularly weary and on high alert and they attach this thought and then they keep thinking it over and over and, and they have that biochemical reaction to that thought, which is a feeling. And that's, that just becomes their go-to pattern. Eventually it doesn't take much to trigger that thought. And it becomes part of who we are. It becomes part of a belief system. Mm. It becomes the way we not only react to the world, but the way we navigate through and explain the world. So that becomes something. I mean, what is a belief anyway? A belief is a thought that we've had with enough repetition and enough intensity where we've come to just see, well, that's the way the world occurs to me. That's just what is. Mm. Do you think though, I do. <laughs> Always? <laughs> no. Ever? I didn't say, I don't, first of all, I don't speak in absolutes. Second, no, I didn't say always. I just said I do from time to time. <laughs> I like to pace myself. It's interesting about beliefs is that as the holder of a belief, sometimes we don't even know it. Oh, that's good. Talk more about that. Well, how often, I feel like we all get to a certain point in life at whatever age or whatever ages in our life, we have these moments where we realize a belief. And before, like, the, you know, it's so hard to, because there's our persona and there's we have our walls up and we have our reactions to things and we react and we make meaning of it and, then we observe that there's all these layers to who we are. Mm-hmm. And so at what point is a at what point do we really know our beliefs? Really know them? Do, like do we ever really know them? No, because beliefs are not absolute facts. They're just an interpretation that we have. And a lot of times I think one of the things you might be alluding to is we don't arrive at a lot of our beliefs through critical thinking. They're handed down to us. Mm. And I'm not having a go at religion, faith, politics, or anybody like that. I'm just pointing out that, okay, so the other day there was a post and person says, this is so interesting. It says, my granddaughter went away to uni. And she's in a dorm with three other girls. I was like, dorm room, four people. That sounds like torture. Anyway, that wasn't the point of the post. I said, (laughs) well, well, these three have a certain political view and they're trying to convert her. But she's standing her ground the way we taught her when she was a child. And she's, she's not converted. She's not being touched by this. And I'm like, Listen to that statement. Hmm. The fact that a conversion would need to take place, 
These are not single isolated ideas and we're discussing them and exploring them. There's wouldn't there have to be a rigid conformative ideology in place in relation to all four of those girls in the dorm. If the word conversion even has to come up, like me and you are walking around Melbourne and like, Oh, let's go get some ice cream. It's like, I would love some vanilla. You're like, Oh, chocolate. Are you going to convert me to the chocolatism of ice cream? It's just an idea. <laughs> maybe we can exchange. Well, do you know where the history of ice cream came from? And maybe there's a point and a lesson and we would engage. That would be a fun conversation. That'd be a creative conversation. It's really I mean, hard to convert a vanilla to a chocolate. I, I tried with my housemate for three years. Oh, It's, it, it's almost impossible. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm vanilla is a safe bet for me. I don't know if it, it's just like, I like chocolate. I'm this this sounds so contradictory, but there's a, there's a lot of things I thought like I like chocolate, but don't put it in other things like here in the States right now. We've traditionally had the worst beer on the planet. And about 10 years ago, that started to shift. So we started with the IPAs and they're like hoppiness for the sake of being hoppy. I don't buy into that. I'm not an IPA fan, not an American IPA fan, English IPA, maybe, but we started with the Belgian ales, which are quite extreme. And, and you know, we're doing some good stuff with our, with our craft beer industry, but somewhere along the line, somebody got it in their head. Hey, you know what? Let's take a stout and we're going to throw some chocolate in there. Fuck oh. off. Like, Oh, that's disgusting. Look, I like chocolate and I like stout. It doesn't mean I want to have them together. And then other people <laughs> are like, Oh, Oh, we're going to throw vanilla in there. Equally disgusting. And then now there's even peanut butter stouts. Like now you're taking the piss. Like let's just throw some jam in there. There is a there's a in Queensland there's a a, a rum rum Bundaberg a rum distillery called Bundaberg. Have you heard of Bundaberg mm-hmm. rum? Anyway, yeah. they make a liqueur that has got coffee and chocolate. It's coffee and chocolate liqueur, and it is delicious. Seriously, so to me that sounds disgusting. Like, oh, I would, like I would, no, I would like, love a coffee, but I'll have a coffee separately. You're about to love it. You're about to love it. It nah, is I don't know like the liqueur version of an espresso martini. Thank you very much. <laughs> Where'd you go? <laughs> Someplace that not everybody listening is going to follow. So moving <laughs> on from that. <laughs> Wow. Anyway, talk about a tangent. So for those of you who are just who are just like listening and going, what is going on? I do really like an espresso martini. So anyway, um, certain things do go together, you know, like in a martini. Like, But I don't like all the sweetness in an espresso martini. What I like is a, is a straightforward shot of espresso. Like I'm a purist when it comes to that. So I, I don't, I don't like all the creams and stuff in there. And it's just, yeah. And something, some things do go pretty well together. Like a wine. What were we talking about? We were talking about, Oh yeah. So 
the fact that you have to convert means everybody is operating off of a rigid ideology and there are no free thinkers. And let me guess, this free thinking granddaughter of yours, she shares the same beliefs that you have. (laughs) Every member of your family has your network of friends. What a coincidence. You have all of these original thinkers that are thinking exactly the same (laughs) in the community. What's the odds of that happening? Uh, Yep. I mean, I'm not a statistician, but I think that's pretty remarkable. <laughs> so, so, so many of our beliefs are, are handed to us. Yeah. We don't arrive at them through evaluation, reflection, contemplation. But is there any, is there any concrete belief that we know that's rooted in fact? Maybe. You know, maybe it's it, it. Maybe it's like two plus two. I believe that's four. Well, I don't need much belief because that's four. Or some people will go, well, no, that's actually twenty-two. Okay, fair point. Whatever. Um, <laughs> I guess context is everything. But but I think more importantly is do we question and reflect upon our beliefs? And we talked about this a couple of episodes ago, mm-hmm. where. Paul Taylor had said something in a seminar where there are so many variables to consider. Absolute right versus absolute wrong might be hard to arrive at. But within our own personal life, is this constructive or destructive? That's something that I subjectively feel and understand. I hate the way this makes me feel. This is damaging my relationships. If I can identify a root cause of that, being a belief that I hold, can I let go of those beliefs? Like if if you explore the work with Byron Katie, she goes through her four questions, which is brilliant. Is is that true? And is that absolutely true, which speaks to evidence? Because if something is absolutely true and you have evidence for it, you also probably have evidence against it as well. And then it's like, what happens when I think that thought? And then who would I be without that thought, without that belief? Because that speaks to identity. A lot of times we don't let go of these beliefs because, well, this is who I am. You know, this is where I get acceptance from. This is how I measure my place within the world. And if I let go of this belief as destructive as it is, who would I be without something that has defined me for so long? And that's scary. It is. But the answer is you can. And just because you believe something today doesn't mean you need to believe that thing tomorrow. You do have yes. the option of altering your beliefs if you have the courage, the openness, the insight to question them, question everything. And there are certain things that I'm going to believe because I've chosen this belief and I know that it's not irrefutable. And this belief does not require other people to share and embrace it. Yeah. I was thinking about this the other day. Um probably every day, all of the days, life, <laughs> reflecting on life. And especially lately, so running that that uh, group program where we're, we're changing shit, stopping shit, starting shit and talking about what comes up and, and I love it. A lot and of shit to deal with. A lot of shit to deal with. And it's like how often do we, like how often I reflect and go, like what is, what actually is it? that I deeply, deeply, deeply want in this life? What do I, what is missing? What is the biggest thing right now that I don't have that I want to have that's missing that would make me happy? And 
then grabbing that in my mind and going, all right, that, that would make life really good. Is everything I'm doing moving towards that? And then getting really honest and going, how much of what I'm doing is just actually holding that at bay and keeping me away from that? Or even worse, how much is honestly probably holding on to making sure that's always distanced, keeping me away from that? And that's where that whole idea about the lady and the camel hits me in the between the eyes because it's like why, where is this belief that we have? I've talked about this before, the whole idea of, quitting my job and I'll do my own thing. And it's like, whoa, I'm so different. It's like, no, you're not. You're fucking the same as everyone else, just another version of everyone else. Like you didn't buy a camel and walk around the world for three years. <laughs> that is very different. Like <laughs> I, I, I live I live in an area, how do I describe mid-city San Diego? It's almost like the Queens, New York of the West Coast. So you've got people in waistcoats, beards, you know, like, People dress like me a little bit. It's kind of like funky, kind of hipster. So on on one street, I'd say within a 15-second walking distance, there's five bars and pubs. It's one of those types of neighborhoods I live in. And we saw somebody walking a goat once down the street. It had a lead. They had a lead right on the goat. And I, I was like, that is so bizarre. Like there's just certain go, things. I'd call it karate. It'd be my karate kid. <laughs> Why? Because those things, they kick kids quite a bit. Because a baby goat's called a kid, isn't it? <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, Scott, I'm so slow. <laughs> I panicked there. I thought, have I got that so badly wrong? If Bobby doesn't know it, it can't be true. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just very slow. Karate kid. Oh, wow. I, did, I just didn't link that up. So, yeah, we're, we're different, but we're kind of different in the way you have different shades of blue. I don't think we're that different from each other in the way that a blue is different from a green, mm. if that makes any sense. Like, we have nuances and we're all very unique. Mm. And then at the same time, we're exactly the same. I, I, I think... One of the reasons why human beings struggle to evolve, and what do I know, is because we're unwilling to give up our illusions and delusions. Yeah. It's very possible for two things to be true simultaneously. Where we have all these stories about human beings and who we are and how good we are. And that's true. And you you look out in your world every day and you'll see evidence that people are trying hard to be decent to one another, that people are innately good hearted. But it's also true that human beings are absolutely violent, torturous, immoral, discompassionate monsters. And then we have everything in between. And we, we, we have this certain narrative about the way the world is, the way the universe is, as if we really know the way we are, people are. I mean, you go on Facebook and you see these posts where people are writing about. Have you ever seen these posts where people are writing about themselves in third person, like they're a character in a novel? <laughs> like he was injured in despair, but he was not. He was not finished. He had more fight. Like, is this person you? When you're talking about the, is this you? Like what in the, I probably seem like a cynical bastard right now, but I'm like, you're writing about yourself. Like you're a character in a novel. 
<laughs> and you're posting it for everybody to read uh. about you. And, and it's like, yeah, that might be true, but we all have these stories about ourselves and we don't reflect. We're not self-aware, not, not meaning me or you or any particular person, not you listening to this. But as a group of people in society, we do buy into a lot of our own bullshit. And for everything that's true, this well, what's the context where this isn't true? Like what's happening around the world now where you're either far left or you're far right. And I don't want to get into politics, but you're the same person. Mm. That there's one group of people that sees the world with absolute compassion, morality, clarity. And then there's the enemy of absolutely everything. And all the ills that are human generated within the world are created by these groups of people. And thank heavens, I'm on the good side. No matter what side I lean to, it's the good side. And if only we could do so. You know what? Both things are true. Yeah, I think I, I think on both ends of the spectrum, the fact that there are extreme ends of the spectrum is a little bit frightening to me in both scenarios, to be fair. But there are good there are good and horrible ideas, I think, on both ends, somewhere in the middle. Anyway, do you reckon that anyone really th- thinks even the worst people I'm on the bad side? Do you think anyone that's on the bad side sits in the middle of being on the bad side and goes, I've chosen the bad side. Yeah. I think there are people like that. Do you? Yeah, I do. Um, I I, I think they're in the minority. We, I, we use these words. We overuse these words, but I'm sure there's someone who might've been born a psychopath or, or became a sociopath. I was like, okay, well, I know this is the bad side. I know this is absolutely immoral and hurtful, but it benefits me in some way, shape or form. And I'm okay with that. But I think those are the minority. Mm. I think for a lot of people, the ones that are really capable of doing some horrific shit to people are the ones that refuse to look into the abyss and stare down their shadow. Mm. Those are the people that will always rationalize that line because they're on the side of good and they'll, they'll act so hypocritically to the beliefs that they profess, but they're so rooted in that story that I am absolutely completely good. They will blur that line until there's no line at all. And in the name of being good, they'll inflict pain on other people and not accept that they're causing pain because they're in this perpetual rationalization. All of us are pretty decent. All of us are pretty good. And all of us are absolutely horrific. If you look into the darkest recesses of our psyche. Yeah. And if we're not willing to go there, that's a dangerous person. Yeah. You know what? I do things sometimes that I cannot stand. And I need to figure out why I do these things so I could do them less and if possible, not at all. Yeah. That's a person who I, who I have time for, who I'd like to talk to. But it's like, I am always on the side of good. And it's always other people out there that have malicious intent or are behaving badly. 
put that person in the right set of circ or the wrong set of circumstances, rather, that's an individual that scares me. I think we do that with each other, like like with our biases. We were talking about last episode, I think. Mm. It's not having the biases. Everyone's bias. It's either denying them, not caring about your biases. That's when people get hurt. So how do we reconcile and move forward from the things that hold human beings back or keep us in this very self-destructive loop and cycle that we're still seeing in the world if we don't acknowledge that, yes, we are fantastic and we are not at the same time? Mm. You can't resolve an issue by denying or rationalizing its existence. That's an, That's avoidance. Yeah, it's. I think about knowing when we need to change ourselves and when we need to change our environment. When is it my environment and when is it me? Like, when am I being a victim? When am I creating shit? I do this all the time lately because, you know, I've been through so many little evolutions of wanting to deliberately change aspects of where I'm going, what I'm doing, who I am, how I deal with things, learning, evolving, who I'm around. I'm very aware of my environment. My environment shapes who I am. So let's choose that environment and the people in it really carefully. But in the process of doing that, when you start unpacking the deeper um, aspects of yourself and getting mm-hmm. to know them, it can be so interesting it can be so um confusing or not confused well yeah like when am i when do i need to take ownership of things and when do i need to go ah it is the environment or when am i you know because both of those things can be toxic i can you know we can walk into the same situation, the same relationships, keep playing them out and then raise our hand and go, everybody's always shit to me. Or we can do that a certain amount of the time and then go, maybe I'm the shit one. Like I'm, I mm-hmm. am 50% of the equation. So if I'm <sighs> walking into new relationships, if I'm walking into new environments, if I'm walking into new situations and they're still playing out the same, well, now it's only a me thing. Or... Is it not like, or is it, you know, and it's knowing, it's knowing when it's knowing when you're. Yeah. Well, maybe the answer is yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I think all of human behavior can come down to environment. Here's what I mean. There's the volume. There's the environment surrounding you and acting upon you. And then there's the environment within you. So right. how you eat, how you sleep, how you interpret stress, how much stress you engage in your movement patterns, thought patterns, that's all intrinsic environmental factors. So on, on a, biochemical synaptic level, that's your internal environment. Mm. So all of behavior, I think, could be said to be directed by environment. I'm sure people can punch a lot of scientific holes in what I'm saying. But as a general statement, understanding I'm not attached to any one belief, I'm going to come out and say that. And there, there's stories about, is it me or is it everybody else? And, and sometimes it is me. And sometimes people take that further. So there are two types of people. Again, there aren't two types of people, but for this analogy, (laughs) there's one that takes responsibility for nothing. And then there's the other extreme where I take responsibility for absolutely everything, even if it had nothing to do with me and I could not have affected that Mm. 
to occur otherwise. So you have those two extremes of people. I think it's what is your compass? So the last episode, we were talking about why I don't you know, like telling my story, because I think a story has to be empowering as much as it is inspiring. What do I do? What are the takeaways? How can I use this rather than how does this make me feel? Am I identifying with this person, which is very important, but all good stories. Think about mythology. Think about religious stories. They're, they're all entertaining. We all identify with the characters. Otherwise, they wouldn't have an impact on us. But there's always a lesson there. Like, this is how you behave in this circumstance. This is how you interact with others. I think that's key. That's critical. And, and for me, I had one story or a lack of a story. I was just confused about all these things that happened. Born physically deformed and the Tourette's and the, you know, everything that I had gone through. And then the very first step was to reframe it because I had developed significance and a level of esteem by being the kid in the health club. And th this is what got me notice where the owner of my health club said, Oh, if anybody's ever looking to cancel their membership, call Bobby and Bobby will save them. Now you're not capable of saving anybody. <laughs> I, I, I think that looking back on that, that's a scary way of phrasing things, but I was the person where eight out of 10 times, if you're like, I'm going to cancel my membership here. I would sit with you and you would change your mind. You would recommit yourself to your membership. And it's not because, and here's the reason why other people would sit with them and they didn't want to lose a member. They were thinking about attrition. Me, I was thinking about when I was fighting in the streets, losing a lot of the time, getting beaten to a pulp inside my home or worse. Mm. Walking outside, having people, girls look at me as, oh, you should just kill yourself. You're so ugly. And that feeling, having teachers scream at me for twitching or act, quote unquote acting out in class, which was Tourette's, I couldn't help that. So I, had, I was going through all of this stuff. And then I scraped together whatever money I had and I joined the local Y and I started to exercise. And I couldn't imagine if I did not go into the gym. And I know that I quit after my first couple of workouts, because the guy who I selected, like helped me, gave me his workout. So I was so sore. I couldn't go back. So I quit multiple times, multiple times, but I always went back until I got to the point where I'm never letting this go. I'll never quit this thing. And if I did not arrive at that point, I didn't know where I would be. And I would look at this person. I would feel so much empathy. It's like, they don't know what they're doing. Whatever happens, I cannot let them leave. Because I believe that this place might be the single most powerful place for them. And I started to realize, wow, all of these things that I went through positioned me for exactly what I'm doing right now. Yeah. When I am sitting in front of this woman who is 50 pounds overweight and she has come to the end of herself and she is crying in bits before there's judgment, before I want to jump in and educate. And there was a point where I did do that prematurely. I was because like education, if they only knew. Okay. So I, I was early in my journey, but the first impulse was compassion. That's like, I need to do something to help her. Yeah. I didn't realize that you can't change anybody. You can encourage change. You could hold space for change. You can give people resources so that they're more resourceful. 
in changing the things about themselves and their lives that would make their experience of the world much better. But you don't change anyone. But I didn't know that, but I held that space. And my boss recognized that. And I went through a reframe. Like, no, these experiences didn't destroy me. They made me perfectly suitable. So there's, and is that true? I have no idea. I have no idea if all of those experiences that I had made me a more empathetic fitness professional, trainer, salesperson, manager, whatever, whatever role I took. But I know it's a lot more constructive than this destroyed me. I know it's useful. So it was reframe. And then I went into another R, which is recognize. Because at that point, all I got forcefully promoted into management. I've told this story too many times. I'm not going to bore people with it. But now I have a team of people that I need to develop so that they can impact people. It's not just about me. As a matter of fact, nothing I do now is about me. So it was all about like, okay, can I, can I reduce attrition by stopping people from quitting the gym? You know, can, can I sell personal training? You know, when somebody comes into the gym and I give them an orientation, do they feel comfortable? Do they feel confident with me? It has nothing to do with me. I need to help other people do that now. And I was in a totally different environment. And I started realizing that when I noticed what people were doing, and I was very clear, precise with my feedback, and I focused on strengths, it was far more inspiring. And it gave them a reputation to live up to rather than telling them what they're doing wrong. And then my, I shared this with my boss. He's like, oh, wow, you know, I got this book for you. It was by Ken Blanchard. So Ken Blanchard, you know who Ken Blanchard is. Have you ever read a Ken Blanchard book? Uh, no, I haven't. He, he was this author, this old-time business guy who used to write stories about management, and he would impart powerful lessons in very readable, entertaining stories. It's kind of like Martin Rooney is the new era Ken Blanchard, except his his books are a lot thicker. There's a lot more to it. So with Ken Blanchard, it might have been like a thin book. In this case, I got the one minute manager where Martin Rooney has a much thicker book, but they're engaging, easy to read, impactful stories that give you valuable takeaway lessons. So he gave me this book. And one of the lessons was this manager. And it's, it's, it's all written in a novel format catching people doing things right, because mm. that reinforces the behavior. And it sounds so simple, but it's true. And, and it's, it's, it's a powerful skill in leadership and in coaching. But here's what starts to happen. When you become keenly aware of what people's strengths are through observation and through care, you also start to become keenly aware about what your strengths are. When you're constantly looking at people's weaknesses and what's wrong with them, you start to notice how their weaknesses and behavior patterns remind you of traits you possess that you cannot stand. So you become how you engage in the world. So if I'm engaging in the world by constantly looking for, so I, so I can bring up and crystallize other people's strengths so they can leverage them. I start to do the same thing by default, whether I mean to or not for myself. So the first is reframing. That's a belief. Number two, once you reframe a belief in a way that allows you to serve people, you start to recognize their attributes and your own. 
Mm. And then, you know, there's, there's, I mean, there, there's a couple of, there's a couple of other steps, you know, in there. I, I think, you know, once you could do that, the next one is reimagine. So I started to reimagine. I started to see myself not as someone who didn't have a lot of prospects or who had a learning disability, brain damage. I started to reimagine myself as a developer of people. I started to reimagine myself as a speaker, as someone who could one day not work with 10 people on a team, but a thousand people in an organization. I could work with multiple thousands of people. I could go out and speak to a couple of thousand people all at once at some point. I got to do all of that because I first reframed my greatest liability was actually my greatest asset. Mm -hmm. And then I focused on recognizing other people's assets and attributes. And I became keenly aware of what my own were. So it wasn't a vague generality. It evolved into a meaningful specific. And then I was able to reimagine a different identity for myself, all based on beliefs that may have been true, may not have been true, but they were highly constructive. And when you do that, I was talking to you earlier on my podcast, Neil Spruce. Neil Spruce was one of the people that had such a profound impact on me. I went into a course. It was five days, 10 hours a day. And he was the lead presenter. He owned the company. And he spoke with such purpose and power and conviction. It completely transformed me. I was like, I want to do what this guy does. I don't know how this guy got up there. I don't know what his background is. I didn't know at that point. I would later go to work for Neil. Neil was the owner of the National Academy of Sports Medicine at one point. So Neil hired me for NASM. I was like, this guy, this guy inspires me. And one of the things that he was talking about is the same thing Mark Manson talks about in his book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. That book is not about not giving two fucks about anything. It is about giving such a all-encompassing, complete impassioned fuck about something that you have no room left. There's no reserves in your fuck bank for anything <laughs> else that is a mere distraction. And when you get to that point, because what you're reimagining is so aligned with your values and it's inspiring, you can then have the final R and that is roll with the punches. You can roll with anything because when you've got nothing else, every distraction is, is perceived as a catastrophic setback. Mm. And for me, a guy who has an enlarged amygdala and I'm always in, in responding to things. In, is a metaphor? In, <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. I was like, I was like, I'm trying to say something serious and going to go there three, two, and there it is. Um, and, and yes, it is a metaphor actually. So yeah, moving on. But if you, if you are completely sold out and obsessed with something, all the other things that happen to you, they're on the way. They're not in the way. Yeah. Yep. And, that, and that's the distinction. So you can roll with the punches rather than I'm misdirected in life. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm like an octopus on rollerblades. I got a lot of motion, but no direction. I get hit with a punch. Whoa, where'd that come from? Mm. I get the wind knocked out of me. I react to that a lot differently than, you know, Peter Drucker would say a monomaniac on a mission. I love it. I'm feeling inspired. I've got one last question before we have to skedaddle. I've got one last really meaningful question that I need. Did, did I answer the last one? 
You answered to, well. You did for me. Oh well, which one? The the metaphor question. Is that your final answer on that? <laughs> I, you know, this is a this is somewhat of a family podcast, Tiffany. <laughs> um, Bobby Capuccio, I need to know the answer to how many holes in a crumpet. Are you serious? Yeah. You don't know. Oh my god! I, so much, I thought you, you knew everything. You are like my wife. My wife will ask me things. Like we'll be driving by, and there'll be a construction site. Oh, oh, when did they start this? Like, why are they doing this now? I'm like, you know what? Um, let me let me ring the city council and just like sort this out. Like, I don't know. I have no idea. All right. Well, there's your homework. Find out how many holes there are in a crumpet. Is it exactly the same? Yeah. Well, does it matter? Does it matter if you're if you're baking them by yourself or if they're mass produced? Because if if they're mass produced, like that's the only way you would get the same number of holes, right? (laughs) How many holes would that be? I don't know, but but there would be a lot of variability. How could you have made it this far in life and not know how many holes in a crumpet? Well, you tell me then. How many holes in a crumpet? How many holes in a donut? Just one. Well, the main hole, I don't know. There might be perforations in the dough, but there's just one main donut hole. Uh, all right, let's wrap it up. This is getting ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I know. People are listening to this going, how many holes are in a crumpet? They're going to be walking yeah. around. Thank you. Someone's, someone's just gone and gotten the crumpets out of their freezer, and they're like, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. <laughs> Please email us. Let us know. I'd be delighted to hear the answer to that one. Uh, thank you so much, Bobby, for another fascinating chat. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Visit us at theselfhelpantidote.com to share your feedback, insights, and recommendations on what topics you'd like us to explore in the future. 